So I wonder if any of you are familiar with a research concept known as um, the law of the instrument. Uh, apparently, the first known appearance of this idea originated uh, in a London newspaper, which contained this little line. It said, give a boy a hammer and a chisel and show him how to use them. And at once he begins to hack the doorposts to take off the corners of shutter and window frames until you teach him a better use for them and how to keep his activity within bounds. My assumption is that anybody who's got children knows this phenomenon that he's talking about. Because in many ways, one of the characteristics of being a child is to grasp a tool and then kind of assume that that tool is intended for every single task you would undertake. Well, in the 1960s, philosopher uh, Abraham Maslow published a book called The Psychology of Science, where he was quoted as saying this. He says, I remember seeing an elaborate and complicated automatic washing machine for automobiles that did a beautiful job of washing them, but it could only do that. And everything else that got into its clutches was treated as if it were an automobile to be washed. I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it was a nail. Okay, so what's he talking about? Well, he's referring to this human tendency to frame the problems that we encounter in the exclusive terms of only the tools that we've been using. But there's a problem. (laughs) What if the problem we're addressing isn't fit for the tool we're using? And which brings me to a larger point. Most of the time, people get hurt when I use a tool for other than the purpose that it was intended to provide. Now, why are we jumping into this? Well, we're launching into a little two-part series that we're going to do this week and next in Ephesians 5 on the topic of marriage. And honestly, we could do a whole semester on this, which we may do sometime in the future, but I want to address a place where I think a lot of us find ourselves in our marriages, and that's the word frustrated. And I don't want to act like everybody's unhappy in their marriage. I'm actually happy to be in a wonderful marriage at this stage. But I do worry that for most people, at some point in your life, the norm is going to be otherwise. For a lot of people, when they talk about their marriage, they express frustration and hurt rather than fulfillment and enjoyment. And when you find yourself there, you start looking for answers, uh, or maybe you start looking for somebody to blame it on, uh, and it so rarely produces the desired result that we want. So I want to throw out a couple of questions here. Why, Why are we frustrated in our marriages when we are? Why is it that when we attempt solutions and confrontations, they fall so flat? Why do I feel so misunderstood by the person who should know me the best? Um, And how do we work together for each other's benefit rather than frustrating each other even more? Well, I think Ephesians 5 actually gives us a lot of wisdom in that regard. But it's going to come as a surprise to you that we've kind of turned to this topic a little suddenly. Remember, Paul in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians has unpacked this glorious gospel. And now in chapters 4 and 5, he's been unpacking the, the application for that. And remember, he said that God in Christ, is unfolding this this formerly secret plan for the universe to reunite all things under Christ. And suddenly, (laughs) he sets his sights on really one of the most fascinating discussions on the nature and purpose and design of human marriages. Now, why does he do that? Well, my premise this morning is that the reason why we get so frustrated in our marriages is because we're trying to use them for things that are against its design. In other words, for many of us, we entered marriage with expectations that were way too low. You know, we thought that we'd be moderately helpful for us to, I don't know, have a friendly companion in life. For others of us, I think we entered marriage with expectations that were way too high, and we foisted expectations on our partner that nobody could hope to fulfill. 
And so this week and next, I want to dive into these blueprints that Paul lays down for Christian marriages. What is the design purpose for marriage? And what we're going to find is this. Paul connects our marriages to this grand mission that God is doing in reuniting all things because marriage is his most vivid object lesson for what God is up to in human hearts. That's it. When you gaze into God's intention for marriage, you'll discover God's intention for the universe as well. And honestly, it's a very dramatic truth. And and until you find your marriage in the broader context of God's plan for the universe, then we're not going to have any hope to rejoice in it. And so I want to throw out three things that Paul throws out that gives us insight into what our marriages really are about, what their purpose, what their design is. And I'm just going to go through them uh, one at a time here. The first one is this. Marriage is a picture of God's grand plan. That's purpose number one. So let's answer that first question. Why is Paul suddenly talking about marriage when he began this whole chapter with this whole invitation to imitate God, like we talked about last week? Well, look at verse 32. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, let's pull that apart for a second. That, that, that first part of that sentence, if you read it uh, as a literal translation in Greek, would read this way. This mystery is mega. That's literally the word he uses there. In other words, verse 32 is this culmination of what Paul has been walking them through in these prior verses. So that by the time he gets to verse 32, he's kind of worked himself up. He's been blown away at the thought of how profound God's design here really is. I hope you've gotten used to me now that I love to sort of examine what it is that blows us away and why it happens. And and I realize that to some degree, it usually happens when we realize how big something is, how grand something is, that you kind of start to get unnerved. And the the time in which this happens to me, I keep talking about this, uh, is when you look at these Hubble telescope pictures. Hubble telescope circles our Earth and points at these really small cones of the universe and takes a picture of it. And they take that data and they clean it up, and they show this, this, again, narrow cone of our universe, and there's more galaxies that can be counted inside that one little picture. Not stars, whole galaxies. And so here we are on little old Earth, right? Uh, living in our houses, we go on vacations, we can see the Grand Canyon or, or, or the New York skyline or something like that. And it's almost like Hubble comes along and it's kind of like, Psst, take a look at this. And we're blown away by the bigness of it. Okay, so here's Paul. He's ministering to these Ephesians, and probably as their pastor, he is knee-deep in their marriage problems. But as he writes, he kind of starts to put marriage in context. And all of a sudden, he gets a Hubble-eyed view of the whole thing. And he looks and he goes, this is mega. (laughs) Well, what's so mega about it? Well, that's the second word that comes in there, and that's the word mystery. Now, when Paul uses that word mystery, your antenna should go up because he's used this before. Remember back in uh, Ephesians uh, uh, 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that his purpose was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Okay, so do you see where Paul is going with this? This mystery he's talking about is God's plan to reunite the universe. So the metaphor for the reunification of all things, Paul suddenly realizes, is marriage. And this great 
wonder of, Christ, of the Christian view of marriage is that it was God's design to give His people an object lesson for what He was doing in human history. This mystery is mega, but I am talking, he says, about Christ and the church. In other words, if you look into marriage, you'll see God's plan. If you get familiar with God's plan, you're actually going to get help for your marriage. Look, I'm really not making this up. Earlier in this semester, uh, the pastors here at Christ Pres and actually some other leaders from in town uh, got together to hear from um, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary's uh, Old Testament professor, Miles Van Pelt, Uh, And he did a a, a day of lecture for us on the canon of Scripture, how it is that we got the books of the Bible that we have. And um, it was a fascinating day where we learned a lot. But one of my chief takeaways from that that I'd actually never seen was what Van Pelt sort of calls the Bible's bookends. Bookends in literature are where the beginning of the book and the ending of the book contain these um, like mirror uh, themes in them. Well, Van Pelt goes on to show that the literary design of the opening and closing of the Bible is fascinating. He says that in the book of Genesis, that that really is the prologue of the covenant that is the Scripture. And the book of Revelation is the epilogue of the same document. But if you really start to consider it, the themes mirror each other. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 1, the topic is creation. Genesis chapter 2, it talks about marriage. Genesis chapter 3 introduces the topic of Satan and the destruction that he creates in the world. Well, then you go to the other side of the book of the Bible, uh, of the the Bible in Revelation, and the the third to last chapter is a chapter about Satan's destruction. Revelation 21, though, is about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then finally in Revelation 22, you get new creation. Do you see the parallelism there between the two books? In other words, There's a sense in which the whole Bible itself is framed in such a way to place marriage at the very heart of what God is doing in the universe. Not, of course, that everybody has to be married in order to get it. That's a very superficial reading. I mean, Paul wasn't married, so it can't mean that. But but to say that God was up to something when he created marriage so that he could frame the way in which he was going to repair the world, that's what's going on. Marriage is the living metaphor for God's cosmic plan to heal the world. It's a pointer. Now, which sort of begs a question. Uh, Well, what do you mean that the world needs repair? How does it need to be repaired? Well, that brings me to the second point. Marriage is a picture of God's grand plan. But secondly, marriage is an antidote for human selfishness. An antidote for human selfishness. Look, let's go back to last week's discussion for a second. Because Paul was talking there about how he wants his people, in their imitation of God, to seek to be filled with the Spirit instead of being drunk. In other words, one of the attributes of that Spirit-filled life is submitting to one another. Now, we're going to talk a whole lot more about that word next week. But notice that Paul goes on to talk about a man's responsibility in marriage as the responsibility of what Christ did in giving himself up for her. What's the point? In other words, he's saying that the way you can tell if the Spirit of God has gotten in your life is if you begin to get less selfish, less self-absorbed. But you know, in my experience, there is nothing like marriage problems to extract just that selfishness from our hearts. It reminded me a lot of a book I read years ago by Larry Crabb called Men and Women, Uh, where he discusses this idea about um, selfishness and how it plays into marriages. 
And his point is this. It's like, yes, people are selfish in marriage, but actually even more so because people often feel totally justified in their selfishness in marriage. And he starts listening to these fascinating examples of things that he's heard from his counseling office for years. Uh, things like, you know, I'm just so frustrated. Uh, I've got to start thinking about me. I, I'm just not happy being with him anymore. Or, you know, after all these time, she's changed, he says. If she would just act like she did when we first met together, then maybe this might go somewhere. Or someone who says, I just feel so stifled. Somewhere along the line, it seems like he just checked out. I just miss being free to do what I want to do for a change and have my time be my own for a while. Or him saying, you know, honestly, I don't know what happened. The spark just isn't there anymore. I don't have the feelings I used to have. I, I guess I just don't love her. And to be honest with you, Crabb goes on to say that he's heard those phrases countless times from Christians over the years. And he says, at that moment, I want to help them because they're hurting. And as a counselor, you want to try to relieve people of their suffering. But here's his point. He says, I can't help them in that frame of mind. Why? Because the common denominator of all of those examples is an unblushing commitment to themselves. In other words, when your happiness and your personal satisfaction is the guiding principle of your marriage, well, then the only possible solution when things get hard is to bail on that marriage. Of course, what's equally sad is when you put the question in these terms, you know, to someone who's sort of in that frame of mind, you'll oftentimes get the response of, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that why I got married? So that I could be satisfied, uh, so that I could be happy. But look, this is Paul's simple answer to this question. No, that's not the purpose of marriage. Look at verse 26. Paul says that the man, when he behaves like Christ, does so so that she can be sanctified and cleansed. We're going to talk more about this next week. But notice that the purpose of marriage is to see the other person come to maturity and godliness in Christ Jesus. It is not intended to be there for my personal happiness. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, was citing a body of uh, research literature on divorce, and he came across uh, this uh, piece of information. He says, in Dana Adam Shapiro's interviews on divorced couples, it's clear that this was the heart of what led to marital disintegration. Each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself, as it always will, but in response, the other spouse got spouse got more impatient, resentful, harsh, and cold. In other words, they responded to the self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. Why? Self-centeredness by its very character makes you blind to your own while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by by that of others. The result is always a downward spiral into self-pity, anger, and despair as the relationship gets eaten away to nothing. And that last phrase stings for somebody who's in a loveless marriage, doesn't it? And what can be done about a marriage that has been eaten away to nothing? We know a common complaint I often hear from counselors is by the time that someone typically makes it into a counseling room, they've already kind of worked through the guilt that they feel over being selfish, and they feel completely justified in their posture and their insistence that the other person is really the problem. It's them that's going on. Of course, at that moment, that's when the lure drops. You know, these lures, these sort of fishing lures. The first lure is the lure of freedom. What if I didn't have this obligation? What if I was free to do what I want to do again? Lure number two is the better spouse, you know? 
man, I sure wish I had somebody like so-and-so. Man, she understands me so much better than my spouse does. Or my old boyfriend, he never disrespected me this way. What was I thinking of when I got married? But here's the deal. This is the Greek tragedy that, that your counselor and sometimes your pastor can see that you can't. That as long as the problem is out there, then all you're going to do is drag your selfishness onto another victim and just repeat the cycle over again. Because look, both of those lures, they have really deadly hooks in them. That freedom that you think you're going to have is going to feel so much more like loneliness than you can imagine. Oh, and that other person? How long into your marriage to them will you discover, oh, so this person is a sinner too. Maybe the only person I can really deal with effectively is myself. Man, we really need to remember what Paul is saying here in Ephesians because the God of the universe has patterned his entire program of human reunification around the metaphor of marriage. And what that means is our marriage only works to the degree that my love for my spouse is an imitation of God's selfless love in Christ. In other words, regardless of what measures I take to repair my marriage, it's only the gospel that makes my marriage possible by remembering what God has done for me, which is a great segue into the last point. I said marriage was a picture of God's grand plan and an antidote for human selfishness. But thirdly, marriage is a sign of just how Jesus heals us. You know, I was listening to a pastor give an illustration years ago about a soap opera he had seen and heard about. Uh, Apparently, there were two young lovers who were having a very passionate affair, and soon the topic of marriage came up. Well, the man wanted to get married, but it was the woman who balked. She was hesitant. Well, after some conversation, she finally blurts out, Hey, look, I don't need a piece of paper to tell the world that I love you. Only my heart can say that. Hey, pause for a moment and admit to yourself that to our ears, that sounds crazy romantic, doesn't it? What's she saying? That piece of paper is the marriage certificate, that legal declaration, a contract that says, I am going to bind myself to you. And she's like, that's so cold. And that's so stale. I don't want to label our passion with some silly contract because what really counts are the feelings of my heart. That's my real foundation of my love for you because it's deep in here. Look, what I want you to see is that this woman's sentiment is entirely outside of the Bible's logic when it comes to love. In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis 2 when he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, that word hold fast there means to cleave. You could literally translate it to glue yourself to. Think about that image for a second. If you glue two things together, their staying together doesn't have anything to do with the intentions or even the merit of the things so glued. It's dependent on the glue. That's the thing that's making you adhere, as it were. Well, here's the point. In the Bible's definition of love, your feelings of love are the discharge of something, not the substance of love. The substance is the glue, which as it turns out is what the Bible calls a covenant, a contract, this promise and pledge to be there in the future. And of course, that promise, interestingly enough, is made outside of my feelings without any reference to my feelings. And therefore, the definition of marriage is a covenant, a public promise, a permanent and exclusive legal commitment 
to share your entire life with someone else. Okay, now look, if you are a modern person, you are wondering if someone sort of tightened your collar a little bit. <clears throat> Is it a little bit stuffy in here? Because I'm telling you, that idea sounds stifling to a culture that values what? Human freedom and individuality over every single other cultural ideal. But here's the Bible's message. If you don't have a love like that, a love that sticks, that cleaves to you, regardless of the subjectivity of your feelings and your circumstances and your mood swings, then you have more than a bad marriage. You actually don't have a bedrock for life. Because that unsettled feeling of just wanting to get away, of always searching for the better pastures on the other side, you know, they don't exist. <laughs> because the problem is, in my opinion, that you've never had someone love you with a constancy that goes beyond how I feel at any time. You know, we find it hard to cleave to our spouse because ultimately no one's ever cleaved to us. Look, y'all, but here's the purpose of marriage. And here's why marriage has to be something that exists outside of our feelings. Because the relationship, the marriage, it is the piece of paper. It's outside of me. It's bigger than me. Bigger than my, even my intentions. Let me use the Bible as an illustration here. Because, you know, the, the, of all the topics that the psalmist is preoccupied by, it's like 130 times in the book of Psalms, King David will use the word hesed in uh, Hebrew. And it's interesting how translators try to translate the word. Oftentimes it'll say his unfailing love. Um, it's translated sometimes his steadfast love. I found a little intervarsity dictionary that said this way, hesed occurs when a superior party provides an essential need to a weaker party that the latter could not provide. Look, here's the point. The only healing in our marriages that we'll ever experience is if we have received hesed from Jesus first. It's only if He has adhered to us and thereby empowers me to give my hard-to-live-with spouse the very same thing. And look, what's crazy is, is you can watch this play out in almost every interaction with your spouse. I mean, think about it. Every time you have to work, and I mean work, to show your spouse even the slightest amount of affection, a Christian needs to think to themselves, wow, how much more difficult must it be for Jesus to love me? But He does. He really does love me in that way. And what's supposed to happen is that notion is supposed to push me further, to love longer, to be patient for a little more time. And what this means is that any real difficulty in my marriage is going to persist until I get the gospel. And by get the gospel, I don't mean that I can say that Jesus died for my sins. I mean the fact of Jesus' passionate, committed, loyal love for you has got to become something that has moved you and changed you and grabbed you and blown you away. That's the only time in which you can really experience what your marriage was created for. Uh, there's an illustration uh, that I've grown to love by a guy named Stephen McAlpin, who is a pastor uh, in Perth, Australia, who loves to tell a story about his amazing mother. Uh, apparently, his father had left the family when he and his three brothers were quite young. And throughout his father's departure from the family, which of course included him meeting another woman and even having two other children in that other marriage, 
his mother would always tell the boys, the only thing he ever heard his mother say about her father, his father, was just pray for your father forever. Well, 20 years later, after all the boys had grown up and kind of gone and started lives of their own, the father emotionally hobbled from not learning from his own mistakes returns to McAlpin's mother. And amazingly so, she accepted him back. Uh, she was 60 years old at that time, by the way. And of course, McAlpin admits that it really wasn't easy for him to accept his father back into the family until just a few weeks before his death. You see, after he returned home, the father was diagnosed with a particularly aggressive uh, dementia that left him with almost no control over any of his bodily functions. He said one day as he went into the hospital to go visit his father, he was turning the corner into the hospital room where his father was. And he looked down and his mother was on her hands and knees cleaning up the mess that he had made on the floor because he hadn't been able to control his bowels. Things had gotten so advanced. He said, all of a sudden in that moment, I looked and I saw my mother on hands and knees cleaning up my father's filth after waiting through years of his emotional filth. And he said, suddenly I started realizing that I could live and learn from my mother's commitment to her husband. She saw, he saw how much his mother loved him and it freed him up to love him as well. Hey, look, I realize that's a sentimental story. And you may look and say to yourself, mm -mm. I'm not sure that's even true, that story. And you may think to yourself, I don't even know if that kind of love even exists. But here's the deal, y'all. Is it possible that we've been hoping that our marriages will fulfill and create and fashion something in me that only that kind of passionate love of Jesus to love us in and through and in the midst of our own filth, is it possible that only when we receive that can we then learn to look at our marriages and love in ways that are truly self-sacrificial? That we can live in marriages that are nothing more than celebrations of being how God is going to change ultimately the whole universe. To be that place where God begins to work on me and my selfishness because He's loved me that way. And so that maybe one day when our children look up at us and they're like, Daddy, what is the gospel? That they'll look and they'll say, well, is it the way in which you love mommy? And is it the way in which mommy loves you? Will there be something about our marriages that shows that? Because for a lot of times, we've been using marriages as a tool for something it wasn't supposed to do. Because the only thing that is supposed to fill us up with that is the gospel. We learn that, our marriages heal. Or maybe, hopefully, prayerfully, let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, would you give us grace? Because again, all of those listening here find themselves at various stages of struggle and hurt and pain. Uh, some joyful, some incredibly relieved, some so thankful for our spouses. But Father, there's a lot of pain out there. And we ask that you would give us the grace to see our marriages from your perspective, to see how much you have stayed committed to us. We pray, Father, that that would begin to work on us, to mold us, to melt us into something that would, be, that would look like healing for our marriages. Father, bless us in our study, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.